Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all today? I hope that everyone is well, that everyone is joyful and peaceful wherever you are on this planet. Today, you know, I I always sound like a weather reporter, I think, but we are so obsessed with the the weather, the British. Today, I have to mention um, that it's so windy and I don't know, maybe it's 60 miles per hour winds in the United Kingdom. So um, bringing a new energy, though, I have to say, and I always feel like the winds of change are always around the corner. And I hope, you know, for all of you, including myself, that whatever changes come are always for the best of our spirit, of our soul, our heart. And change is not easy. It's something that is, as human beings, we find difficult sometimes to accept. But we have no real choice because life can send change within a second and what is important is what is our attitude to change what is our strength in that moment and something that can help us immensely in life is that beautiful word but also that courageous and magnificent thing called faith and faith is not easy to have especially in these times. But unless we have faith, you know, unless we have faith in a greater power, the one that created us, you know, whether you call him God, whatever you want to call it, there is something far greater than us. And yet it is within us. It is part of who we are. We are not separate. We are just reflections of this beautiful divinity here on earth. And this is why I am so pleased and really honoured to have today's guest on the show. Now, she is an encounter coach and the founder of the Pittsburgh Transformation Centre, and that is Lisa Pinney. She is an expert in working with people to help them experience healing and change through deep personal encounters with God. And this is something that we haven't yet had on the show. So I'm really quite excited to talk to her because she's got quite a fascinating story. She's also the author of the book, Deeper Living, The Christian Life in the Deep Down. Uh, 
And she has developed a therapeutic deck of cards, which are groundbreaking and faith-filled, and they are based on scriptural principles and also on cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of you may be familiar with that. Lisa also conducts Deeper Still retreats and workshops. And excitingly, she has just told me she has just released a book called The Cut Through Tough Emotions Journal. And, you know, I paused because I'm not going to say what I thought it was going to be. We had a little moment, me and Lisa, there where I thought it said something completely different. So I paused there. I got a little bit nervous making sure that I got it right. (laughs) This book is available now on Amazon and also on her website. So she has an extraordinary journey, actually, one full of hope and faith. And um, I'm very honoured for her to be here. And she will join us and share with her, with us, in fact, her beautiful journey. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. How lovely. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm so glad to be spending some time with you. Oh, how very sweet. That's so lovely. And me too. I was very much looking forward for you to being here today and to share a moment of your life with us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) You're very welcome. Now, Lisa, you have quite an amazing story, really, because what I always say to my guests, you know, you have to be free to speak on the show exactly how you want to be, you know, and to share your story. And I know that you have quite an incredible story from where you began to Mm. where you are now. So tell us a little bit, um, Lisa, from the beginning, if we go back to the beginning, a little bit about where your journey began. Okay. Well, um, I came from an Italian heritage and my dad was hardworking. My mom stayed home and they parented me the way they were parented. And uh, a lot of that has to do with screaming, yelling, swearing, and regular beatings. Mm -hmm. And um, it was normal for them, but it was very damaging for me. And I seem to have taken the brunt of it. Uh, My younger sister, she was cuddly and adorable, and I was not. Um, I took the brunt of it. Her memories are completely different of childhood than mine. How she related to my parents, even as adults, was different than how I related to them. All those things created a certain amount of feeling isolated and rejected and different. Like um, like who I was wasn't right. At the very core, I did not feel like, like everybody else seemed to have. You know, they would embrace life and I, did to a certain degree, but I did it with a certain amount of hesitancy. So I forced myself to do a lot of things. Um, And then, you know, became a teenager and did the whole self-medication thing. 
by the time I got to be 21, mm-hmm. when it was legal to drink, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I want to ask you, hold on, I want to ask you something. So uh-huh. from, if we go back just a little bit, so ever since that you can remember, you know, even as a child, do you, do you feel that you never really belonged in your setting? Is that something because you weren't being yourself? I've never felt like I belonged because I didn't feel like I was accepted by my own family. Like in the family Mm. dynamics, my sister was preferred. And And it was was you and your sister. Yes. Mm -hmm. So my sister, um, she just has a different outlook as a child. And she was more compliant. I didn't even know I wasn't being compliant, but according to my family, I was. Here's an example of how I viewed my world. I was Mm -hmm. about five years old and I used to line up my baby dolls and I had this like broken kid's broomstick handle and I used to line up my baby dolls and beat them and swear at them. And my mom would laugh, she thought it was funny. But when I got older and I had my own kids, it hit me. Oh, my God, I was imitating my family, Mm, mm -hmm. Um, my parents. And so I asked my mama, did it ever occur to you that I was imitating how you parented me? And she was like, oh, no. But that gives you an example. How can a child feel like they belong and that they're loved and accepted when they experience regular beating. That's a difficult situation, mm-hmm. especially, um, you know, because I hear so many stories and, you know, I know a lot of my friends and we all come from different cultural backgrounds and we can say, well, you know, it's that culture and it's this, but it really is. It can be actually, it's sort of, well, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. It's something that we do. Yes. But it's not yeah. correct. But you, then you have this battle, because I know a friend of mine, and she comes from uh, an Asian background, and for them it's quite normal. Um, and several of her family members to actually, I'm not saying everybody, but it was quite normal for her to be beaten and there was you know if you complained you were the wrong one there was something wrong with you because you weren't going along with the status quo so Mm -hmm. to speak Mm -hmm. so it it must be as a child you know because we as children sort of imitate as you said we imitate our parents and they're the role models that we look to so it's a case of identity isn't it also oh my gosh yes Mm. My identity at the core was I was broken. There was something wrong with me. It was shame-based. I saw myself through a lens of, well, my parents don't like me, so why would you? And why do you feel that they didn't like you? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I have to ask you. You know, I always... You know, it's... I always ask this, you know, for people, because I think, well, because we all have it, you know, we all have 
family members that don't like us. And I, I remember also having a family member and thinking to myself, well, they don't like me, but I like them. I don't understand this and I'm five. What, what is this all about? Um, yeah. And they're still alive now, actually. And I think, you are so weird. I remember thinking, you know, as a child, you know, how can someone not like their relative? Um, I don't see this particular family member a lot, um, but it is a strange feeling because mm -hmm. it makes you feel there's something wrong with you. So if you go back for my parents mm. to their parents, because a lot of abuse kind of stuff is generational. So when you go back and you look at my mom's life, um, she, her father did similar things. When you look at my dad's life, there was a lot of um, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. We would call it alcoholism today. They did mm -hmm. not. It, it wasn't even, it probably even wasn't a word when you go back that far. But the dysfunction the all of it all of the dysfunction stems from in my life from the way my parents were treated and they did what they knew to do so while they could say they loved me it was equally possible in their world and in, in their style of parenting to beat you because they thought that was how you should raise a child mm -hmm. that you you make them submit. Um, and not, those aren't words that they use, but that's what the actions imply. And you always felt like this, that you didn't belong, Lisa. I can remember being four or five years old, having um, words with my mother. Um, and I said, I hate this place. She said, well, if you hate it so much, why don't you leave? And I, so I was a little brazen. I went, well, I think I will. And she said, well, I'll help you pack your bags. So she packed my bags and I started, I left. I had family that lived all around us. We all sort of lived in the same small town. Mm -hmm. And I got halfway up the street and she said, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm crossing the street and I'm going to my grandma's house because my grandmother loved me and I felt loved by her. That was very brave at such, such a young age. Oh my yeah, but, when, but like you can only take so much. And if she didn't want me there, then fine, I would leave. And how old were you, four? Four or five, and I distinctly oh remember that. Um, and she probably thought it was funny, but to me, like it spoke volumes, mm. volumes upon volumes. And then there's incident upon incident. And all of that accumulates over time to affect, it, it affected my identity. So even now when you talk about, and I hope you're familiar with this, the attachment theory. Mm. There's the secure attachment that usually in a healthy family unit would develop. But mm. I had this um, ambivalent and this anxious approach. Can I talk to my, can I, can I ask them for permission to do something? Because I never knew what I was going to get. 
as opposed to whether you'd be beaten for asking something mm-hmm. or disapproval. In fact, it didn't right. have to be a beaten. It could be just, um, you know, maybe it was words of disapproval or, and, mm-hmm. you know, energetically or something, you know, as children, we feel it a lot that if we, you know, uh, even a look from a parent, isn't it? Or an adult changes the whole shift of everything. Well, you speak of looks, and I do a lot of work about around emotional triggers. Mm. For years, I'm married uh, 38 years now, but for years, my husband would look over at me, and I would say, you're mad at me. He'd be like, what are you talking about? I am just looking at you. And it took me a long time to realize that him looking over at me in that particular way was triggering me. Because when my dad gave me that look, I knew I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my past and my present were colliding. Yes, that's a tricky, tricky thing, isn't it? When you (laughs) somehow carry that into your present and everything that happens to us, in fact, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. We carry into our present moment. So... Mm -hmm every single thing that we have lived through becomes part of who we are in a way because we've experienced that and that those scars remain with us. They do, but they're invisible. Mm. 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 So when I was a child, you didn't even have, you, there, was, there was no mention of this. Now there's a whole lot of systems in place to care, make sure a child isn't suffering. Mm. And over in America, we have what's called um, CYF, Child Youth Services. And they're the agency responsible for making sure children are well cared for physically and emotionally. Mm. Mm. That they're living in safe environments. That they're being fed. That they're getting proper medical treatment that they're not being abused physically or sexually. So I don't know what you have in your part of the world. I'm interested. Do you have a similar agency? Well, it's called, from what I know, it's called social services. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, social services is the name really. I mean, um, if you have issues with the well-being and welfare of a child um then you would go to social services for example we had um somebody come round to us and it was an electrician actually and his wife's an alcoholic and he's got two children but what had happened is because while he was working she was looking after them he reported her to social services. They're getting a divorce mm. now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know in these circumstances. But um, yeah, so it's like, um, it's a government um, organization that's run. And, it, and in each bor- borough, so it's sort of every borough we have, um, all sorts of boroughs around the um, country, each one has a social services department that not only deals with, children that could deal with young adults that can deal with um people who have mental health issues or the elderly you know anyone really i suppose who's vulnerable Mm -hmm. 
And then you have people like social workers and they are sort of the represent representatives of that agency, so to speak. Um, but it's all run by the government. Um, so it's, it's comparable for us. Yeah, I suppose it would be pretty much a similar type of um, thing as okay. to the states. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Mm. Yeah, because we do need to protect our vulnerable. Yes, very much so. But, you know, I've noticed this. Just hold your thought there, Lisa, because talking about the vulnerable, you would think, and I've seen this actually, um, you would think that when people see people that are not well or, you know, have some sort of a disability, that they would be more compassionate, one would hope. But what, what we have experienced, I think, a lot in this country is there's a lot of people who are actually, sadly, I'm not saying everybody at all in this, but it's a rise in the amount of people that don't understand that some people do have disabilities and they can't be the same as everybody else. So they suffer a lot of prejudice, oh, which is... so true. And this is very sad. You know, I've seen it um, with family members. And I always say to my family, look, you know, just because you have a disability, don't expect somebody to understand or to want to help you because they won't, you know, and take it that they won't. You know, maybe 70% of people will, but take it that they won't because you're not going to be disappointed. and. It, they are vulnerable and they need looking after. So as society, I would say worldwide, we do need to look after the people in general. But I also feel, Lisa, that we need to really start understanding that there are people out there who really need our help. And yes. we have to try somehow really in order to save this world to use this compassion and this love more so it's within our own power we have this huge power we just have mm -hmm. to use it it's true it's very true and we cannot depend on our social services to be able to address all of those needs mm. very we true. have to have our own part mm. very very true and we have to take responsibility i um especially you know during this whole pandemic um it has been really sort of an eye opener especially in the point of where people whatever people's thoughts or are of of governments and things you know everyone has their own opinion but we have to stop looking to be as well spoon fed um mm things and wake up to the point where we take responsibility for our own life. Right. And I also feel like you can't ask the government to mandate everything going on in the pandemic. Some of that has to mm. be that you are, you are compelled by love mm. to something as simple as wearing a mask so that you can keep your family members safe. To, you can keep 
other people safe. You can keep yourself safe. I view that stuff as an, my small contribution to end this pandemic. I might not ever do medical research, but this is my small contribution. And this is the way I can show that I care. Here, I'm going out in the public. I'll wear the mask because it protects you and me. That's an interesting subject, actually, I have to say to you, um, because, you know, not everyone can wear the mask. So right. we have this system, you know, people that have, you know, pulmonary diseases and asthma or anxiety mm. or, you know, can't wear it. And some people just choose not to wear it. Um, that's and that's fine, you know, because it's personal choice unless you know there's a law where we do have a law in this country but it's an interesting subject the mask um, I have to say and there's great debates about it in the UK um, I, I try to stay out of the debates because I have my own sort of opinions about the whole thing but um, whatever you feel in your heart whether that be a mask whether that be I don't know you know seeing how your neighbor is or you know Right. Doing one small act of kindness, I think, can what we think is small can change somebody's life. That's true. That's very true. I, how many times have you heard um, somebody say that something you felt was insignificant made the difference in somebody else's world? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've I've heard that so many times, and you Me know, too. You know, you can even, I don't know, you can see somebody down the road and you can just say hello and, you know, you can even speak for five minutes, but there's something about that person and their whole aura that is uplifting and they probably don't even realize that they actually made your day that day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we don't know, we really don't know how we're going to have an effect on somebody we can't have really an idea about that. And that's why I think if we approach people with love and integrity, right. we can go a long way with that. It's very true. And that's love is what drives me now. Now that's what I want to ask you, because I know that um, you went through a difficult time, um, seven years um, of, not easy times. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit um, about that and how you managed to get through that. So oh, my kids were growing up and moving out. So I had several major life changes happen within a year and a half. My kids moved. We moved. We changed churches. I changed careers. And I went through my own personal change, you know, the womanly stuff. Mm -hmm. so those five things together were like a perfect storm. And so in my lifetime, most of that, as, as my adult life, I was the one, the strong one, the one people leaned on and looked to. Well, now I was the one that was all jammed up and locked up. I couldn't, I was numb. And um, because I always saw myself, like the older I got, I went from being not feeling like I belonged or loved or understood to being the one everybody depended on. My identity was just as much in that. 
And um, so during that time, everything that I would normally have done to care for myself wasn't working. And I didn't understand it. And so um, Monday through Friday, I worked for a surgeon. Actually, I, I worked for several different people during that time because the anxiety made me go, I'm not putting up with this. I'm leaving. Mm. Um, so anyways, I would work and I would do a good job. And because anxiety means, oftentimes means you care too much. So my caring showed up as double checking and triple checking my work. So people thought I was doing this great job and that I cared a lot, but really it was the fear of getting in trouble that goes way back to my childhood. Mm. The fear of getting in trouble that was driving my, my behavior. And so now I have this combination thing where I really do care about people, but it's also colliding with all these fear-based um, things from my past. And so um, I would work for five days. And then Saturday was the day that I would take care of things around the house, maybe go out for a meal with my husband or a friend. And Sunday morning, I would wake up while my husband was still asleep. And I would sit down with a cup of coffee and maybe my Bible and I would cry. Nothing I read I could, could I um, find relief, nor could I stay focused on anything that I was reading. So my mind was all over the place by the time Sunday came. And my husband would come out, and this went on for several Sundays. He'd be like, why are you crying today? And all I could say was, I don't know. Mm. I just don't Did know. it happen all of a sudden or uh, gradually that you began to cry? Um, I would say it sort of, there sort of was this collision and it sort of seemed to act like um, a gusher. It just all of a sudden would, there was a day that I just couldn't cope anymore. And because I couldn't deal with it, I didn't know how to deal with it. And because I had this belief that like, I'm the strong one, I'm going to get through this. It lasted for seven years. The anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> seven years. And I was, I took medication for it. And so I think that a lot of people are averse to medication and there's a stigma with it. Mm. But if you're the one struggling and you have a doctor that can find a good fit for you, use it. Because if you're too anxious, you can't look at all the deeper layers. It clouds your judgment, doesn't it? Because it sure you're, does. you're working literally, as you said earlier, it's, fear-based mm -hmm. and when you're in fear you can make the most extraordinarily bad decisions as well you can the other part of fear is it can be crippling and paralyzing yeah and so that's where i was so um over that in that course of seven years um a couple of things happened hmm. 
I just happened to be surfing on Amazon and I found this book called The Invitation by a guy named Tony Stoltzis. And the book was twofold for me. It was personally enlightening and it was, he was a master coach and he coached the heart. Uh, so he, he really did, he like combined everything I was ever interested in because I always had an interest in human behavior, probably because I was so messed up. Um, but I always had this interest in human behavior. And so he took faith principles, coaching principles, and, and human behavior and human experience, and he wrapped it all up together. So that really started my journey of healing. But then it turned into a call because I always had this interest in sort of like social services stuff. Mm. Um, but I never really felt like I should uh, become a social worker or a therapist. For some reason, it just wasn't clicking for me. Um, so I, I actually signed up to become a certified encounter coach through his program. That facilitated part of my healing. The other part of it was very, very faith-driven. And so here we go back to the idea of social services. I worked for child advocacy um, here in Pittsburgh for a brief stint as a secretary. But that was the place that made me face my fears and made me face my past. Mm. And so, okay, now I have the, the, I'm in this coaching program and they're teaching me to have these conversations with God. And those conversations became very healing. At the same time, I'm at child advocacy and I have to face my fears. And um, so one day we had to view um, something that was caught on camera of a father beating his son with a belt in a parking lot. It never even dawned on me that that was my norm. And I went, eh, my dad used to beat me like that. And all of the people that worked for child advocacy that were in the room viewing that film turned and looked at me in startle. That was when I was like, oh, that was pretty messed up. I gave myself permission to say that the things that I experienced were abusive. That's a big step. Huge. Mm. And so shifts came into my heart and life after that, because I feel like change starts at the heart level. Yes. Starts, right? Absolutely. Um, because if I could discipline myself to be another way, I wouldn't have been anxious. Yes, it sounds so simple. <laughs> not. That's but as we know, it's not so simple. But it's not. Mm. 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 That's why diets don't work. Because yeah. you can't discipline yourself when you're emotionally eating. And right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I'm at the Child Advocacy Center and I'm receiving this healing 
and all of this change is happening, but my anxiety is going through the roof because I'm facing my fears at the same time that I am changing. And um, so I had, I, I left, I had to leave, I had to get into an environment that I thought was going to facilitate my transformation, my healing. Um, and besides, my husband pretty much liked the paychecks, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. If I had it my way, I would have quit. But, uh, you know, everything, everything in its all due time. I kept working to become who God was creating me to be. And that was different than uh, somebody who had secretarial skills. And quite honestly, I hadn't spent many years working in a Christian school where all the kids came to see me and talk because I was a safe place for them. And so this transformation was starting to um, be first and foremost personal, but it also became a call. I was like, I can't. I just, I can't do this anymore. And my husband and I talked and agreed that last year in June, I should leave the workforce and pursue this life call and this life work. And I have never been more excited about life, felt comfortable in my own skin like I do today. Now, let's, go back a little bit God was something that you believed in as a child or is that something that you found later on in life um I so my parents used to make me go to church mm. but they didn't themselves go uh so as soon as I didn't have to I didn't after my confirmation I quit going and then um, when I hit about 21, um, I actually found myself, I, I must have blacked out from a night of drinking and partying. And I woke up and I didn't know where I was. I left that place. I went home. I got ready for work. And I, when I got to work, I was working alongside of a young girl who was always happy. And I was like, what do you always got that stupid smile on your face for? <laughs> um, and so she told me why. And for her, it was her relationship with God. And mm. she prayed with me. And from that point on, things started to change. Um, and so I became, I went to church and I became a Christian and I started, I met my husband and we got married. We started raising our family and we were going to church and I was working in a Christian school and then everything crashed. And that was like, I, it probably needed to crash mm. because God mm. was after something deeper. He saw all the brokenness and all the fears and how they kept like surfacing and showing up in my relationships. And he knew that there was something that he wanted to accomplish through me. So that seven years of anxiety 
actually was a very formative time. So it was personally healing and it was, it prepared me for my life's work. I, I truly believe that, you know, um, Lisa, I believe that um, really we as human beings, as beings, we have to go through so many difficulties in order if our life calling is actually to serve the people mm-hmm. as I look at it you know it's an honor to do that job and in fact it's not even a job it it is as you say a calling of the soul mm-hmm. and it's impossible I think to do properly until we're smashed to pieces in some way that really the real pearl comes out and then we can start from a place of honesty and reality to who we really are as opposed to who the world, our family, our friends, whoever it was, wanted us to be. 100% agree. 100%. And I couldn't have said it better. I liken it to um, an M&M. Life makes us form this hard outer shell Mm. and it kind of needs to be smashed open to get to the ooey gooey center. And our hearts are supposed to be soft, not guarded. Mm. And we're supposed to be open, not closed, not angry. We shouldn't have to live with that mask of anger or self-protection. Yeah, absolutely the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, this is why I said to you earlier about the masks. It's an interesting thing that the world, we can look at this on a, on a divine level. I'm mm-hmm. not wise enough to give you the answer. Um, but I contemplate life a lot. And I think, what is God really trying to teach us here? What is it, you know? Um, In a way, it's like something was sent into the world and we were all sent into a seclusion and, um, you know, contemplate your life. It's not about getting further out there, but getting further inside of yourself. Oh my God, so true. You know, the feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then, then, when you've learned to speak your truth, Speak it mm-hmm. as it is. But so many of us are many times afraid to speak our truth. It's true. It's risky. Yeah. Um, when I started to speak my truth. My sister was like, why are you saying that? I said, because it's true. And she did not believe it. And she still mm-hmm. to this day says, it's not as bad as you thought it was, but I was, I, sh- I took the brunt of everything. Mm. And so that, that's her truth. Mine is different. This is the thing, you know, and Lisa, I think that we have to meet each other halfway on this bridge of truth mm-hmm. because what is her truth? What is my truth? What is your truth? is completely different. And, how I feel pain and how you feel pain 
is very, very different. So, you know, maybe a headache for you would be nothing, but for me would be a whole big thing and, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that is also comes from the understanding and the compassion. And I think what you went through, you know, from what my feeling is, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that it was in a way God shaping you to be who you really are and mm-hmm. giving you that real lesson that um, unless you accept this calling that is really a calling of the heart and the soul, you're going to suffer. Because I think we suffer if we don't accept our true calling. Oh my gosh, 100% true. We suffer more when we won't yield to the changes that are being presented to us. Yes, absolutely the truth. Yeah. Because Mm. we prolong the pain. The more you resist, um, your attitude towards change, the level of denial that you live in, all of those things factor in. And so when you go back and think about the, the electrician that we talked about, mm-hmm. you would think that having social services show up at the wife's door would be her wake-up call. But like for so many people, um, it becomes just another point to be angry and, and another reason to be upset and another reason to defend and protect yourself. You defend your position. It's not as bad as you say it is. It's somebody else's fault. Yes. Yeah, very true. I mean, if you have the risk of losing your children, even to the point of that, and you're willing to take that risk because you're too angry and you're too hurt in a way, Mm-hmm. Then it's, that says a lot, you know, and it says a lot about us as humanity that sometimes we can be too proud. We can be proud to ask for help. We can be proud. I don't know. It could be proud of our background. It can be proud of our status, whatever. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, ultimately, if we don't breathe for five minutes, you know, We're not Mm -hmm. here anymore. There's nothing to be proud about, really. Mm -hmm. Only to accept the acceptance that we are all frail and fragile. But in that frailty, we can reach to each other and realize that in reality, there's so many things that we are the same. Well, and that's the point is that the pain that you experience, if you lean in and do the work, makes you empathetic towards other people, Mm. their stories, their pain. It makes you understand. And so um, the more I started to heal, the more I started to understand people. And then my pastor approached me and said, "Um, I'd like to send you away to a conference. And it was an emotional healing type conference. And when I came back, he asked me to make myself available to people in the church. So that was like another step of my healing. So it goes beyond me. And now it starts to affect other people. Mm. 
And it wasn't enough. I mean, in God's plan, he, he was like, no, I put too much into you. I've invested in you. I brought you out of this dark place. I want you to reach more people. And so um, last year when I quit working, I just thought I was going to do this little coaching thing. And I was going <laughs> to, yeah, within, <laughs> within. You know that saying, Lisa, we plan and God laughs. I, I yeah, think. right. <laughs> so um, that's how the cut cards came about. I actually figured out, like through personal experience, how you deal with beliefs, how you identify the stories you're talking about, mm -hmm. how you um, figure out your unhealthy ways of, of living and coping. I figured out... I don't know how I figured this out, but I figured out that somehow emotional needs were, were the pivoting point. And then, and then with my coach training about asking questions, well, now we're just going to ask God these questions and he's going to give you what you need. So one morning, I really was not planning on doing any of this. I'm talking to a friend on the phone. I go, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to develop a deck of cards and call them cut cards. She said, what is that? I went, I don't know. I wasn't, I really, must be a God thing because I wasn't planning on saying it. <laughs> it really was. And so, oh, okay, let me back up. Right before that, a year before the cards, um, were starting to be developed. I actually, um, maybe it was two years before I had an angelic visitation. I oh. was, yeah, I did. I was actually going to, um, getting ready to sit down and put my shoes on to go to work. Mm -hmm. And out of, it was so surreal, but like out of the blue, this angel came with a torch in his hand and said, carry the message and put it in my heart and left that fast. And I was like, what the heck just happened? But I knew enough because I read my Bible. I knew that, that it was possible. Mm -hmm. My question was, what's the message, God? And so um, by the time the cut cards, fast forward to the cut cards, the message became clear. Emotional healing and wholeness are available in God. It's not like you think it is. It's not read more, pray more, and serve more. It's connect to him deeply and let him take care of your heart. And so um, really what it means to me is the tools that I use to heal are, are a combination of cognitive behavior therapy and a trauma-informed approach. And then you add in, you add in the God piece. And now you have the opportunity to heal at a deeper level and live a much more healthy, full, productive life. So tell us a little bit. It sounds amazing. You know, the <laughs> fact that you had an angel, for goodness sake. I, I mean, know, right? You, you know, I mean, you said that so easily, like, you know, it just happens, one of those things. But um, it's an absolutely extraordinary experience. It must have been. Um, oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I didn't tell anybody about it for days. 
And how did I, you know it was an angel? Did you actually see the form of the angel? I have to ask you this, I'm, I'm, because I love angels. So how did it look? Um, very, so, mm, sort of see-through. Mm -hmm. Okay. So not a hard and fast physical person kind of thing, sort of see-through. And it was like he came through the window of time. You know, he just all of a sudden appeared with this torch. Mm. And he was, it was male figure, not female. No, no wings or anything like that. The whole thing took place in... Uh, probably 10 seconds. And were you awake or were you in a sleeping state? No, no. I was awake and I was actually getting ready to sit down and put my shoes on to go to work. So my drive to work was like, what? What was that? And what's this message thing? I don't understand. I don't have a message because it happened at a time when I was like at the height of my anxiety and was ready to take time off of work because I, I, I just couldn't manage. And, and so when I was at my worst, the seed for the call was birthed. Now, this angel that you had visit you, Lisa, mm -hmm. did you feel, because you know when you are in the presence of holy people or really sort of ethereal beings, there's a certain, the whole room or the whole atmosphere changes, that it's something surreal in fact. It was surreal. Mm. It How was. did it make you feel? Um, a bunch of things all at once, perplexed and special and honored. And part of me was like, did that really just happen? Am I making that up? But it was real. And it's proved itself to be real because I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm living yes. out my life's call. And I did you know immediately, did you know immediately that was the point of transformation? No, because I was in my darkest place. So even though I was moving in that direction of healing mm. and I was going through this coaching program and I was fortunate. They, um, so there were like four or five workshops that I had attended. And during those workshops, they asked for volunteers. For some reason, I got called up to be a volunteer. They, they, they were like, come on up, please. And each one of those times sort of started to build on the other and bring more and more healing into my life. So instead of feeling alone, which was something I always felt, I started to develop this sense of God with me. Mm, mm. And instead of feeling rejected, as I started to embrace the fact that God spoke and has purpose for my life, I started not to feel so 
insignificant. That's a huge shift, isn't it, from your childhood? I have so many shifts, Mm. so many things. Like, so in my family, it was um, shut your mouth or I'll shut it for you kind of things. Now, okay, so then I spent a lot of years going, should I speak up or not? Mm-hmm. And the saying my mother and father always had was, is that moth of yours is going to get you in trouble. The place where I was most damaged is the place that God really wanted to bring about in my life. So, so I was told, shut up and sit down. And now God's saying, no, stand up and be counted and use your voice. And so that's, the place, <laughs> that's crazy, it's, right? It's, yeah, it's like the opposite end of the hemisphere, mm-hmm. in fact. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I always spoke up, but I did it with, like, I had to force myself to do it. Mm. I, there was always this hesitation in this, should I or shouldn't I? So anytime I had to go in t- and talk to the principal, go talk to my pastor, um, maybe I had an idea. Uh, with my principal, one time I had to tell him, hey, this girl was here in, in my kitchen and she told me that her dad hit her with a dog chain. I think we have to call, I'll use your phrase, social services. Mm. He did not like that. You would think he would advocate. He was like, no, how do you know that's true? How do you know she's not making up that story? And I kept saying to him, it's not my job to know. It's Mm. social services job to figure that out. You're mandated reporters. You have to report. And Mm. so I was advocating when I, because I didn't want anybody else to suffer like I had suffered. Yeah, yeah. Um, so probably I advocated all my life for the underdog and for the broken, but I always did it through that. It always had to be filtered through that. Is it okay to do it right now? Is it too risky? Am I going to be believed? Um, so the more healing that happened in my own life, the more I'm like, well, yeah, people are going to listen to you because you're telling the truth. Mm, mm, mm. And you had the visitation. Mm-hmm. And then how long afterwards? Because you've written two books now. Yeah. You've written uh, Deeper Living, The Christian Life in the Deep Down. Mm-hmm. And you've also developed these cut cards. How soon after that visitation did you ap- uh, embark upon the journey to do that? So probably between the time of the visitation and the time the book came out was two years. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd like to describe it to you as I started digging and the more I dug, the faster it went. Or I was, uh, let me say it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. It was like, um, the more I wrote, the more cathartic and therapeutic it was. It was as if I was cutting something down at the root. So think about a tree Mm. or 
a bunch of weeds and you use an ax to cut the tree down because, you know, really it's dead. And so I started cutting down the things in my own life that weren't working. And the, all of those were at a belief level because thoughts drive behavior and need drives behavior. So as I dealt with the thoughts and allowed God to heal me and give me back um, all the things my heart needed most, it was like I could... I don't know, it just worked out exponentially. I saw more, I felt more, I helped more. Um, I, it became this laser focus of how to navigate the heart. So you go from emotions to beliefs to um, the things that aren't working in your life, the patterns that develop to, oh, this is what my heart really needs and this is how God will give it to me. And it became this very streamlined process. And so now when I work with people, I have six months of research in the cards. And I took people that were really going through some hard stuff. And people, uh, so one was going, had cancer. Another one was bipolar. Another girl had lost her mom and had PTSD that re-spiked because of it. Um, I could... And then my, one of my best friends was going through the absolute worst time in her life. Uh, and her life was pretty bad to begin with. So in that six months of research, I saw all these people in the program having these deeper, more meaningful interactions and encounters with God that changed their outlook and gave them hope. And did you use that, for example, the cards as a method of teaching the people how to do that? Was that one of the methods that yes. you used? Yes. So even now when I coach, I might bring out a deck of cards. Um, so the, the girl that had the PTSD had already been in counseling previously, was currently in counseling for two months. And... Um, she was somebody I knew from the school I worked at that had grown up and become an adult woman. And so we, I was talking to her and I said, here, just let me show you these cards. And they were in their initial stages. Her mouth dropped open. She said, you just took me further in 20 minutes than my counselor did in two months. Wow. And I don't say that bragging. I'm saying that's how effective I have found this to be. But what is on the cards? So tell me, for example, go through um, a little bit, Lisa, how, what is written on the cards? How many cards are there? And are mm. they cards that anyone can buy? Can you get them? Where can you buy them? Or is it something that only you use in your therapy? Okay. So there's probably about 40 cards. Honestly, I don't even remember. I've tweaked the cards so many times that by the time the final product came out, I was just so glad it came out. I was so happy about it. I, I really don't remember. Uh, there's, I'd say there's about 40, 42 cards. Mm -hmm. And it's a very holistic approach. So the first card is called a personal inventory tool. And that's where you gauge your emotional state. Am I in fight, flight, or freeze? And at the same time, you're gonna gauge your physical state. Where am I holding stress and trauma in my body? And most people will say their shoulders. For me, it's my guts. Everybody has a place. 
So if I came to you now, Lisa, and I said, okay, let's, let's do the cards. So firstly, can you buy the cards? Can anyone buy the cards? Yes, anybody can if they go to my website, ptcenter.life. Okay. I don't have them on Amazon because, um, yeah, it's a, a pretty expensive endeavor. It is, it is, it is, uh, it is, for sure. So <laughs> I put my books on Amazon because they, they let you upload for free, but I don't put the cards on there. Yeah, they charge a lot of money to actually mm-hmm. have them on there. It's true. Now, I come to you and let, let's do an example so the people, you know, out there know and the listeners, you know, if they're interested in the cards, know a little bit about it. So I'm going to come to you. Let's do like a little mini sort of session of mm-hmm. how let's pick a card or two cards or how does it work? Um, you so the cards have groups. So you have the personal inventory tool. And then there are six cards with a bunch of adverbs on them that describe the emotion you're experiencing. Because I find that most people go, I just feel bad. I don't know what I feel. So these cards make you really pay attention to the emotion. And you need to, because you, you, can't, you can't hit a moving target. That's mm. mm. so, true. And then, so there's always a thought behind every emotion. So it's, you have to identify the story. And the story might be, this always happens to me. But if I do this, I'm going to get in trouble. If I do this, he's going to leave me. If, um, if I step out and try something new, people are going to laugh at me. Mm-hmm. So knowing your, your stories is a big part of it because thoughts drive emotion. And then if it's an unpleasant emotion, you're gonna run away from that pain and run to something that will comfort you. So maybe you withdraw from people, which is one of the unhealthy coping strategy cards, uh, withdrawing. Maybe you go into this self-protective mode. Maybe you self-medicate. Maybe you self-shame. And that's a big one. We all tell ourselves, you shouldn't have done that. Because you did that, you brought this on yourself. So there's like a handful of cards that help you see your unhealthy style of dealing with pain. And then we move to these other cards that are identifying your emotional needs because what your heart needs is different than what you want. So I'm feeling invisible and what I need is significance. Well, maybe I start like really talking loudly to get attention or um, I try to climb the corporate ladder to feel significant. But really your heart just needs to know that you're loved, you're cared for, you belong, you're significant, you're heard, you're valued and you're understood. So those are like the hierarchy of emotional needs. And I grouped those together. When you know what your heart needs, the next Mm -hmm. one is I have a group of cards that are questions. They're all coaching style questions. Basically, they're scriptures that I turned into questions. And then you ask God. And I learned that from, from the program I was in, Leadership Metaformation. And so you ask the question and you don't 
like make a loud declaration. You just, you just take a few deep breaths, close your eyes, remove all the distractions, and you allow yourself to have God speak to you maybe through a vision, because we have spiritual eyes, and maybe he speaks to you auditorily, and that will show up as a flow of spontaneous thoughts. Mm. Or he might show up in a presence, like you can just, you just know he's there. But if you tune in a little bit more, you'll know that his presence is sending a message. Like maybe it's comfort and maybe it's love. So what I find is, is that when you slow down and tune in and you ask the question like, Jesus, how are you supporting me today? And then you listen. You always have to fight the, through the, was that God or was that me? And I just say this, if it lines up with scripture, if it's the nature of God and the character of God, it's most likely God. Mm, mm. And if you're not sure and you're working with me, I'll help you figure it out. But you can also journal it and go to a friend and say, hey, what do you think about this? But mostly it's once you realize that he's speaking to your heart and bringing you healing, you have to sit with that because you get so jammed up and it takes time. It takes time to, to sort of let go of the stress, let go of um, the pain. And you sit in the pleasant emotion and it starts to be like um, a filling up. That's the best way I can describe it, a filling up. And in a way, it's, I suppose, this fullness of spirit, isn't it? Of, um, Yeah, that's a perfect way to say it. Yeah, you know, the feeling where the emptiness leaves and something far more deeper um, mm -hmm. occurs. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm all for counseling, but mm. I say this, only God can heal a soul wound. A counselor has a role in everybody's life, but God, God heals you deeper than any counselor than ever, ever could. Mm. And so my hope is, is that this becomes mainstream and that everybody decides that they want more, a deeper relationship with themselves, with God, deeper healing, so mm. that they can live from their true authentic self and not just being conformed to the image that everybody in the world around them is conforming to. Oh, absolutely. That is something that is such a beautiful vocation, really, Lisa, and amazing work that you do to try to bring people to the realization of how precious they are and how important mm. they are and really how loved they are. Mm -hmm. Which, I couldn't have said it better. And it's beautiful work really. And I'm really, really honored to have you here today because people need to hear that. They need to know that they are part of something far greater you know, this tapestry of life mm. 
is really far greater than we could ever imagine. And it's only something that we can weave together with our souls. Yes. So you can't separate body, soul, and spirit. As much as you try to, you can't. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's a holistic and a wholeness Mm -hmm. about it where I think this is the point when we try to follow our physical wants and desires, it's never enough. Mm -hmm. But when we realize that something far deeper goes on within us and there is a soul calling out, and wanting to be heard, then I think everything changes in an instant. It's instantaneous in that because we realize then that something has touched us that is really truly holy and divine. Yes, agreed. You said that so well. Thank you. Oh, thank you. But really, you inspired me, I have to say, Lisa, because it's so really truly, truly humbling also to listen to your story because you have shown so much bravery through your life that I'm sure the listeners and me for one will, is really reminded again of this huge power and this huge light that exists and that is actually within us. So in a way, you know, in every way, I think your story and your words are a reminder to all of us that every answer lies within us. And Mm. uh, how beautiful is that, that we are so loved, that here we are together sharing this journey at the same time on the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I could talk, really, I could talk to you for days because it's a subject that is really dear to my heart and something that, you know, I feel from you how much you really are a believer in all of this and how it has changed your life. But, you know, sadly, we come to the end of the episode and I would just like to ask you, um, I always ask my guests, what sort of advice would you give, Lisa, to people out there? who are maybe a little bit desperate, a little bit sad, a little bit lost, something that has stood you in good stead in your life? Yeah, I would say acknowledge your pain. Be true to that part of you. And then lean in to do the work. Do the whole work. Don't just pick and choose what parts you'll deal with when they show up, when the different forms of pain show up, pay attention to all of it and trace it back to its roots because roots always create fruit in our lives. And sometimes it's bad fruit, but pay attention and do the deep work and don't leave God out of the picture because he'll take that work and bring about more healing than you can do all by yourself. Beautiful advice, actually. You know, we're not alone. This is one of the most important things to remember is that we're not alone. And the great despair of these times, of these modern times, is thinking that we are so isolated and alone. But really, we just have to make one step towards God and he comes running to us, which is a beautiful way to live 
one's life. Yes. It is a now, beautiful way. Yes. Yeah. And would you say that now you feel that you are really doing God's work? Yes. And I feel like I'm in alignment with God and my true self. Amazing. I love it. I love it. It's so inspirational and gives joy to the spirit to hear such profound and beautiful words. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on today and sharing your journey. Now, if people would like to connect and find out more about what you do, do you work online as well? Can people contact you and, um, you know, contact you via zoom or whatever do you do one-to-one coaching at all oh that's all i really love to do is the one-to-one coaching Mm -hmm. i do the workshops and i do the retreats i um actually have a retreat coming up in october but i love the one-to-one coaching Mm -hmm. because it's so intense and and it's so beautiful to watch and yes i can i use zoom Mm-hmm. And if somebody is interested, there's a place where you can contact me through my website, or you can reach out to me on Messenger or Facebook, you know, somehow. Um, and we can start the conversation. And what's the website address? ptcenter.life. ptcenter.life. Okay. And people are free from all over the world to contact you because this goes out everywhere so they can contact you and then you can you know take it from there basically and find out you know if you're a good match etc it's yes Uh, there's always a phone call or conversation by zoom that you i want to make sure you're this is what you want i want to make sure you feel like that it's the right move for you because i really don't want to take your money i want to help you Mm. I'm not, I don't do this for the money. Well, I have to, to a small degree, but I do this because I want to make sure that you get what you, what's available to you, you know, and if I'm not the right person, I'll refer you to somebody who can help you better than me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you again, Lisa, for joining me. Really, it's been a pleasure and um, it's, so lovely to speak to such inspiring and positive souls such as yourself. Thank you. I, I loved our time together. I love sitting around talking with other people and it just is, it's an honor to be able to share this message on your podcast today. Oh, how very lovely. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the best in all that you do and um, come back again sometime and tell us about how things are going and your new book um, and all things wonderful, I hope. Yeah, I hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Lisa. Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Take care. Take care of yourself. Okay, bye. 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 Lisa Pinney, what a story of faith and courage and really also showing us that faith can really move mountains. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Until next time, look after yourselves and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovic.co.uk.